Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to our session. At the outset, we're just going to do a very quick acknowledgement of country. And I'm going to read it as it's written, because it's going to match the words that come up in language on the screen behind me. We acknowledge the Ghana people, the uh, traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains, and pay respects to elders past, present, and future. We recognize and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. So hello and welcome. My name's Anton Enos. My day job is bringing you the news on SBS World News. <laughs> Which, by the way, I really love doing. You know, it's, uh, I would do it for free. Um, that's how much I love it. Um, but also, my passion is being at festivals like this talking to interesting people and hearing about really wonderful books. And I think for all of us, being introduced to new authors. Um, before we start, uh, just a couple of housekeeping things. Please, please adhere to the COVID protocols. They've, they are very important for the safety of the whole festival, but also for your own personal safety. So when you're moving around, please maintain distancing between you and the next person. And where appropriate, please wear your mask, and please do wear it over your nose and your <laughs> mouth, please. <laughs> Otherwise, it's pretty pointless. So two things about today's session that, um, two things that are not taking place today. This is not the Isabel Allende session. Sorry, fans <laughs> of Isabel Allende, but she couldn't be with us today. So uh, this is a different session. It is also not an analysis of the invasion of Ukraine. This is a historical perspective of the Soviet Union, and obviously there will be some overlap on the situation as it is today. But if you're looking for an analysis and a look forward to what comes next, maybe that's a different session. So just to get those two points absolutely clear. Also, the book is available in the bookshop. I did check, Sheila. So. It is available. I can even hold it up in the <laughs> traditional way. Sheila will be available to sign your copies if you take the trouble to buy one in the bookshop over there. Acknowledged as a world-leading scholar on Soviet history is our guest this morning. She's been writing about the Soviet system for six decades. Armed with a BA in Russian studies from the University of Melbourne in the 1960s, armed with a, a BA and a scholarship, she headed to Oxford, St. Anthony's College, where she was awarded a PhD for her thesis on the Russian writer and administrator Anatoly Lunacharsky. During that decade, she was, like the Beatles, back in the USSR. In the ensuing decade, she has published prodigiously, including books on the Russian Revolution, education and culture in the Soviet era, life under Stalin, and the Australian connection, of course, is there under a book partly titled The Red Peril. In 2016, she was awarded the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Nonfiction for her book On the Stalin Years. She is also a noted memoirist. My father's daughter was about her relationship with Brian Fitzpatrick, founding member of the Australian Council for Civil Liberties. And by the way, that book also won the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Nonfiction. And A Spy in the Archives, documenting her early adventures jousting with Moscow bureaucrats and making lifelong friends, which I hope we'll have time to talk about as well. We are very fortunate indeed to have a scholar of this stature with us today. Please welcome Sheila Fitzpatrick. Sheila, having just said that this session is not about the invasion of Ukraine, I'm going to start with a question <laughs> on oh, exactly how can you that. Do this to me? <laughs> uh, we do know that the Ukrainians and the Russians have a long and complicated history. They're almost like cousins, I guess, in that part of the world. Um, when we look backwards in time to the seven and a half decades of the USSR, the relationship of those two nations within and subsequent to that union. Um, what comes up for you in terms of milestones and markers that might help us understand why we're in this terrible situation we're in today? 
Well, first of all, this is a huge question, obviously. But I guess the first thing to say is that the Soviet Union actually was a union of republics, of separate republics, based on a nationality principle. And the biggest of those republics was the Russian. It was a federated republic. Uh, so the Russian Republic was the biggest, and the next biggest was Ukraine. And then you had Georgia, you had Azerbaijan, uh, Uzbekistan, and sort of 14 or 15 uh, that came after. So this is the situation, uh, this is the way the Soviet Union is set up in the early 1920s, after the Russian Revolution, and it's the way it continues up to 1991. And one of the things I tried to explain in my book was how important the, these republics and the uh, task of, uh, and the leadership, the, how important was the role of the leaders of these republics uh, in what happened there. You know, we have, we have a picture of the Soviet Union as extremely top-down. And it was extremely top-down, especially under Stalin. But the thing is that, that power was, a, a lot of power on domestic affairs was delegated to the Republican level. Now that's particularly relevant if we think about how the Soviet Union collapsed. Because basically, you're, basically in my reading, it was mainly not what you would have expected uh, it to be in a way, mainly not a popular uprising against the oppression of Moscow. It was a matter of the leaders of the republics taking their republics out of the Union. And the Ukraine was one of those that goes out of the Union. So was Russia. So was it a surprise to you when we saw this invasion of Ukraine? It was sort of presaged by a lot of... There was a sort of uh, um, fear-mongering campaign. There was a, a campaign of misinformation, talk of genocide and neo-Nazism and so forth. Given what you know about what came before in terms of the management of uh, information and uh, smearing and so forth, did that come as a surprise to you? It was a surprise. Uh, now, I have to say, this is outside the scope of my book, but Putin is in the scope of my book. That, uh, that is, I have a, a final chapter, which is a, about after the Soviet Union, then what? Uh, and I actually had, in my last paragraph, I had, uh, I quoted what Putin said, uh, it's, it's often been quoted recently, uh, that anybody who doesn't regret the passing of the Soviet Union has no heart, and anybody who thinks the Soviet Union can be restored has no brain. Well, I quoted that, but, 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 then I said, but maybe Putin thinks that somebody with a brain, like Putin, could maybe get a little bit of that back, and I did have a sentence about Ukraine in there, and then I took it out because I thought, come on, you know, this book is not just for uh, 2020, 22, but uh, I'm, I'm, this is happening. I'm writing this in the middle of last year. Uh, so, but anyway, so the, that whole, um, the whole question of the exit uh, is, uh, that, that's key. So in terms of how you know Vladimir Putin uh, from observing him over many years, I saw one analysis that he said that the dismantling of the USSR was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century, which is a pretty big call given you know, the number of world wars that we had in that century. Um, do you sense that there is a kind of hankering back towards recreating what was in the past on his part? Yes, I think so, although exactly which past uh, is not so clear, but a, a greater Russia, yes, I think there is that sense. Uh, and I actually think that before this war, as regards popular opinion after the invasion in Russia, I, I think we all don't know and we're all waiting to see, but before this war, uh, many Russians, especially of Putin's age, would also have uh, they would have remembered what was for them the humiliation of 1991. They're a great power, they're a superpower, and suddenly they're nothing. And suddenly they're abused by all the, uh, the departing uh, republics. So that I, a lot of people 
it would have made sense, I think, to a lot of people uh, that uh, Putin's stance on NATO, for example, that he didn't want NATO right up against his borders in the former Ukraine. And I think many people in Russia uh, would uh, remember that Gorbachev, back in the, uh, in the 90s, uh, thought that he had an agreement that Eastern Europe, let alone the former Soviet republics, wouldn't join NATO, and it turned out that he didn't. However, all of this is attitudes before the invasion. It seems to me that uh, the invasion is, that actually invading uh, the Ukraine, killing Ukrainians, who, as you see, say, are seen as, as cousins in a sense, that's all a lot more difficult, and not even to mention Russian casualties. So that I think we can expect, um, uh, or Putin can expect uh, some problems at home in terms of opinion. I'll ask you one last question about Putin before we move on to uh, the actual USSR. Uh, there's obviously a lot of analysis in the media these days about what's going on. Any number of retired military people commenting about this. And there seems to be one thing that seems to come up time and time again, that they're saying it's along these lines that um, the Russians respect strength, a response of, of, uh, of strength, and they will not react to weakness. So knowing what you know about, about Putin, who seems to be driving this process, does that make sense to you? It makes sense to me, but if it's a policy prescription that says uh, the West should be putting in troops, I'm not sure uh, that I... I, I you know, I'd go along with that policy prescription. Yes, but in general, uh, Putin uh, definitely seems to have been a person who who uh, advanced where there were, he saw weakness and didn't where there was uh, strength. Now, surely there was a miscalculation here about the reaction of the West on Putin's part. I, I think he could not have expected anything as solid and as strong as the outrage. Uh, he hasn't encountered anything like that before, and so how he react to it, I think, you know, we don't know yet. We'll see. Um, you certainly write uh, in the book about, in the, in the chapter about the dismantling of the USSR, that Mikhail Gorbachev had a kind of handshake agreement about that expansion eastwards uh, of NATO that you just mentioned a moment ago. Um, how serious, give us a sense of how seriously um, it would have been taken in Moscow that the, that the West dis really disregarded this undertaking. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, if, you, if we think back a bit to the sort of historical situation, uh, from the Second World War, basically the countries of Eastern Europe became Soviet satellite countries. And when any of them showed signs of departing as Hungary in 56 and Czechoslovakia in 60, 68, then the Soviet Union sent troops in to quell that. And Brezhnev uh, basically said, we'll do this whenever it happens. That was the Brezhnev doctrine that, uh, you know, what is socialist stays socialist, actually. Now, in 1989, as uh, the Berlin Wall falls and not only East Germany shows signs of departing, uh, but the other state, Eastern European states that had been under, under uh, had had communist governments, uh, Gorbachev did not react in the traditional way. He didn't react like Brezhnev. He basically said, okay, go. Uh, now, exact, uh, exactly why he did that without asking for any clear quid quo quo or whatever, perhaps in a way out of idealism that he really did think. Uh, that states should be, you know, should have a democratic choice. Anyway, he said go, and then he's talking to uh, sec U.S. Secretary of State Baker and 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 Cole in Germany, and they assured him. Uh, this he said, but it also seems to have been confirmed by uh, by memoir type sources later. They assured him that these states would not be taken into NATO, and that there would therefore be a kind of a, a neutral zone, so to speak, uh, between uh, the West and uh, and the Soviet Union. Uh, then, as I, I said before, 
that 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 quasi deal that un, uh, that verbal agreement was forgotten about and the east european states were well first of all germany when germany united it uh, east germany was automatically in nato so in a sense the agreement could never have been literally carried out but then the other east european states joined uh, and uh, the question then arose, what about the new states that were formerly in the Soviet Union? In the Soviet Union and under Soviet tutelage is a very different kind of thing from the Soviet point of view. Uh, so that I think the feeling, uh, there, there is quite a strong feeling uh, that Russia got, well, would trick be too strong? Anyway, Russia lost out mm. on the question of these European states joining NATO. Uh, but to lose out on the question of former Soviet republics joining NATO, that's another step. And I think uh, not just from Putin's point of view, but perhaps from that of many Russians, a step too far. Um, we had Malcolm Turnbull on the stage uh, a few days ago talking about his interaction with uh, Putin and how he seems to have changed from those from those early days when he was quite sort of coldly calculating, mm. sort of you know quite a, um, a clinical approach to things, to the man we see nowadays is kind of a kind of ranting uh, uh, personality. Um, this sort of very general question, Sheila. If you look along the whole pantheon of leaders from Lenin right through to the, the 21st century. Where would you place Putin in terms of intellect, vision, policy making, and so on? <laughs> Let me comment first on, on Malcolm Turnbull's point about the change in Putin, because I would really endorse that quite strongly. Uh, when Putin first came in, I don't, people perhaps don't remember now the 10 years of Boris Yeltsin. Uh, you know, and his, his sort of drunken, drunken falling around, and uh, generally he became a real embarrassment. And uh, uh, and then comes in Putin, who nobody knows, uh, who's an apparently unpretentious, but evidently very bright man. And I remember his, well, for the first first ten years or so, his his talks on television. He would he would he would broadcast on whatever the situation was. They were very focused. They didn't ramble. They were focused, sensible, uh, non-emotional, a rational kind of presentation of things. This does seem very different uh, from, from what we see now. And I, and I don't follow, you know, I'm not a political scientist, so I don't, I don't follow it in, in the, that way to sort of do it year, uh, month by month. But it must be about seven years ago that when I was, you know, doing, going off to work in the archives in Russia, and I, as usual, was looking at Putin on television, and he seemed really burnt out to me. That, uh, you know, one of the things is, is you thought about him at first was not only this is a rational man, uh, but this is a self-disciplined man and a hard-working man. All of this with the Yeltsin uh, in mind. Now to your... Um, to your comparison with other rulers, uh, which I hope that some incredibly uh, clever thought would come to my mind while I was speaking. <laughs> and <laughs> surprise, surprise, it didn't. But let, <laughs> let me say that on um, Lenin, of course, was another very bright man, uh, uh, with also single-minded, also determined, also uh, not very bothered about the casualties that might, uh, might ensue. Uh, after him came Stalin, and the, the thought about Stalin uh, during the Western view of Stalin uh, for most of his, uh, his period in power, which is the 30s, 40s, and into the, the 50s, was that he was really not a bright man at all. He's educated in a seminary. He didn't have higher education. He didn't have uh, university education. Uh, he had a, uh, a Georgian accent in Russian, which made him seem <laughs> somehow not that bright. Uh, uh, his speeches were boring. Uh, so he was, and Trotsky, his main antagonist, Trotsky said, this is, a, this is a mediocre man. He's nobody. And so we all thought, oh, yeah, a mediocre man, although a tyrant and bloody, etc." Now, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when the archives opened for us, then we found, actually, that Stalin was a whole lot brighter 
in, in an intellectual's terms, you might say, than we might have thought. One of the things that was a real eye-opener to me was looking at speeches that party leaders had given to Stalin to approve. Now, they presumably gave it to him to approve for ideological content. And he did that to some degree. But he, what, he, could, he corrected their grammar. Uh, he he uh, changed the punctuation. He introduced paragraphing where it wasn't. Uh, he, in other, and he used the proper markings for editing. I've, I've never found out how, how it was that he knew that. Anyway, it was all, we also discovered that he had a very large library uh, of uh, over a wide of belletre, I mean literature, but also history, sociology, Western as well as Western in translation, as well as uh, as Russian. In other words, he was a, a well-read, an autodidact, but but a well-read one. So okay, so that's Stalin. Khrushchev, nobody has ever claimed high intellect. Uh, well, um, look, you can't lead a you can't get power in a country without some intellect, but. The general thought has been sort of more on the lines of, of, of peasant cunning, I suppose, uh, and, uh, and terrific political inst instincts. Uh, Brezhnev, the same, no very high claims uh, for him. And uh, the other thing about Brezhnev is he stayed around for far too long. He got old, the people around him got old. He got really doddery. Uh, he kept appearing on television and he would present medals to his closest uh, uh, his closest comrades from 50 years, and he couldn't remember their patronymic. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that one with Ustina. It was terrible. He was just standing there, sort of shaking, and Dmitri, Dmitri. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, so he looked in the end uh, like a very diminished man, and so then came Gorbachev, full of energy, uh, uh, full of ideas, or, uh, and uh, obviously, again, a bright man, although from the, the point of view of many people in the Soviet Union, uh, the, the end result of all that wasn't so great. Okay, so have we placed Putin anywhere in the midst of that? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, Putin has a good Soviet education. If you, if you put them in terms of education, he would be up there with Lenin. Uh, Lenin had a good not Soviet education, but or he had a partial uh, uh, education as a lawyer. Uh, yeah, I think it must depend if you're talking about the early Putin or the late Putin. Uh, I would, I would certainly put him above uh, Khrushchev and Brezhnev. I guess I'd have to think about Gorbachev. Uh, yeah. Okay, and did I sort of reading between the lines uh, sense that you had a bit of a soft spot for Brezhnev? <laughs> well, you know, when I I was commissioned to write this book, and uh, but I found it uh, an absolutely fascinating uh, commission because uh, it meant that I had to think what was the whole Soviet Union about. I had to look at it as a whole instead of doing what historians um, love to do. Uh, which is to take a small thing and know everything about that small thing and uh, refuse to generalize beyond it. So I was forced to, uh, to do that. Uh, but then I thought, how am I going to uh, start this thing? And it suddenly occurred to me to start it in 1980, in, that is in Brezhnev's time, in, in 1980, which is a relatively high point for the Soviet Union. Uh, it, it, uh, in terms of standard of living, in terms of military strength, mm. it's a superpower. Olympic uh, there, year. It, hmm? it was an Olympic year. It was a, it, well, that got boycotted. So, <laughs> it, 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 yeah, the, the things start to go down in the course of the year, and then Afghanistan is at the end. But you know, take the beginning of of uh, of, uh, of of 1980, and it, you know, I think it felt to many people like a sort of calm harbor after. The terrible upheavals they'd gone through in the previous half century. I mean, you know, famine, war, civil war, uh, Stalinist terror, you name it, they'd had it all. But in Brezhnev, you didn't have any of these things. You had achieved a, 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 a relatively, actually, egalitarian society on still a, a fairly low level compared to the West. Mm. In other words, you, people didn't live as well there, but they lived a lot better than they had. 
Uh, and so I, that's how I start the book, because uh, it was just at that moment. Uh, the, the Soviet Union had, during the Cold War, there was a lot of hostility to the Soviet Union, of course, in the United States. And great pressure, this is a minor thing, but funny to me, great pressure against in the what was then the card catalogue of the Library of Congress. Great pressure against having a card called the Soviet Union, because that would acknowledge that the Soviet Union legitimately existed. So if you wanted to look up the Soviet Union in the subject in index of the Library of Congress catalogue before <laughs> the early 80s, you had to go to Russia, comma, 1923 on. Uh, that was, <laughs> I mean, talk about Russian so chauvinism, actually. That, would apply if you wanted to go to look up something about Ukraine. Uh, anyway, in the early 80s, the librarian of Congress, who happened, uh, Jim Billington, who was a Russianist, he wrote around to all the Russianists saying, don't you think it would be a good idea uh, to have a, a, an entry in, the, in our catalogue of the Soviet Union? It's a bit silly. We've refused to do it all these years. And we all said, yes, of course. It's a really good idea. Uh, and so 11 years later, there isn't any Soviet Union. So there were <laughs> 11 years of card catalog of current entries were made. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, okay, so we're gonna do like a, a whistle stop tour through the seven and a half decades of the uh, USSR. And you're gonna maybe just give us a little flavor of sort of different themes that uh, kind of run through that. So when we think of um, the beginning of the uh, Soviet era and the sort of centrally controlled economy and society, everything is planned and deliberate. And you say in your book that uh, they frowned upon terms like things happening accidentally or spontaneously um, because that didn't fit in with the ideology of the time. And yet you say that didn't really reflect the reality. So what did you mean by that? Well, as, as Marxists, uh, the, the Soviets uh, felt that they, you know, they had a, a key to understanding history, they, a key to understanding historical progression, uh, which included, for example, uh, the knowledge that after capitalism would come socialism. That was part of their understanding of history. And they thought that, uh, as well as that, uh, part of their, a very important part of their program uh, was to assert state control over an, an, uh, a previously capitalist economy, which they saw as anarchic and liable to be damaging to many people within it. So the creation of, a, of, a, of a, an economic plan, the first one was called the first five-year plan. This sounds, it sounds to us incredibly boring to, to have an economic plan, but in the early 30s, it was quite sexy. You know, there was this notion it was a little bit like space in the 60s, you know, the exertion of extending human control to travel into space was a, you know, it was terribly exciting. Similarly, for many people at the beginning of the 1930s, extending uh, human control over the economy, that was seen as a great uh, advance. So there's big, big investment in the notion uh, that socialism, uh, that the Soviet Union has, has, has uh, that planning occurs in the Soviet Union. And it did occur. There were five-year plans uh, with regularity. However, uh, in real life, things were never, they were all the time not going according to the plan. Uh, and so a sort of staple of Soviet humor was to comp compare what the plan said and what actually happened. So that's the point that I'm trying to make there. Okay, so when the Soviet Union came to power, I mean, it was quite a disparate uh, collection of nations, some from Europe, Slavic, some Asian. What held, it, what held it all together? What was the thing that stopped it from just kind of, you know, exploding apart? Well, in part, I mean, there was a history. You know, it wasn't a matter that the Soviet Union took in a whole series of hitherto independent states. Uh, there were some, uh, especially not at the beginning, the Baltic states had been independent during the war and they were taken in after the war. But as if you're looking in the early 20s, what it is doing, in effect, is reconstituting the old Russian empire. In other words, uh, uh, Places like the Ukraine had had a, a brief, very brief period of independent statehood in the midst of the civil, civil war, uh, but and were being drawn back in. 
Uh, in Central Asia, it was a different situation. There hadn't been uh, states covering the area of the present Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and so on. There had been uh, sort of little fiefdoms of a smaller kind, which had been taken under Russian control in the 19th century. Uh, so it's a different situation all over. But as a generalization, we can say that uh, what's going into the Soviet Union is in the early 20s is what had come out of the Russian Empire on its collapse uh, in 1917 or in the subsequent years. So as you write, in the, uh, when the Bolshevik Revolution came about, um, they inherited an incredibly um, inequitable system. I mean, the, the, the numbers you quote from the, um, the census under the under Tsarist Russia, the literacy gaps, for instance, between men and women, between young and old, between city and country, were quite marked. It was quite a sort of very uneven, not to mention class structures. Um, what was the plan initially to deal with all of that? The Bolsheviks had a big commitment to education of the people. Uh, Lenin himself uh, was quite notable in that respect. His, his, his wife, Nadezhda Krupskaya, was, became the deputy minister for education. But basically, uh, the thought was that you, you need to, in order to make, for people to become citizens in a socialist country, they need to be educated enough to know what being a citizen meant. Now, the f so the first thing is to teach them to read and, uh, and to introduce compulsory first pri or universal primary education first and then secondary. And that's what they were systematically doing in the 1920s and particularly the 1930s. Uh, so that by the Brezhnev period, it's actually a very well-educated population, uh, including up to, uh, up to graduation from high school and in, into tertiary education. And I even, to a degree, suggest in the book that maybe they put too much, maybe they over-educated in the sense that uh, you, you had the creation of a very large uh, professional middle class. They didn't call it that, but that's what it was, uh, which, because of the relative egalitarianism of the system, wasn't earning all that much more than a skilled blue-collar worker, uh, had less, uh, might have a dacha, might under Brezhnev have a car, but basically the range of possessions available for those who did well was smaller than in the West, and they were starting to know this. Uh, and of course, the other thing is that the younger uh, population was much better educated than the older population. So they're looking at the, at the doddery old people like Brezhnev mm. and starting to be quite unhappy with them. What about uh, women? Because I think in the, certainly in the early years of the, of the uh, Soviet system, um, it was very male-dominated, wasn't it? So how, were they keen to change that, or was that something that they, they sort of were dragged to? No, 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 no. That was key policy. Emancipation of women, they, no, they were, it was absolutely key policy. And there were, in the, the early Bolshevik leadership, there were quite a few women. What happened when they seized power, comparatively speaking, that uh, number goes down. But no, they were really keen to get women into the workforce, to educate them, uh, to remove laws uh, that impeded their freedom to dispose of, of property, uh, that uh, they... Uh, made divorce easy, they legalized abortion. They, there was a whole raft of, um, they, they removed uh, uh, the notion of, legit, uh, removed the stigma, uh, legislated to remove the stigma of illegitimacy. So there's a whole raft of things that they, uh, uh, of, of emancipatory legislation. And that's the 20s when, uh, you know, they're still struggling to get anywhere and you have legislation that it has only a, probably limited effect. But if we're talking education for women, it's really good by the end, including even in somewhere uh, like Uzbekistan. But you get pushback. You get pushback from once you're in power. It's one thing what the party leaders who are intellectuals who've lived abroad, cosmopolitan. But what about all those party functionaries who are mainly working class? Mm. Uh, you know, they basically come with the assumptions about what a woman's role is. Uh, that they'd grown up with. And so you've got a constant fight between, uh, not fight, sorry, you've got tension 
between the emancipatory intentions and the and the practical uh, realities. But certainly, in the end, uh, you you'd got most of the women in the workforce, uh, which meant they had the double burden, you know, with their, their, because they are conventionally supposed to do all the housework, all the childminding. Uh, unless they have a grandmother resident, uh, and, and as well as have a job. So one of the ironic things with the collapse of the Soviet Union was that you had uh, some women uh, basically throwing off emancipation and saying, great, now we can be a housewife. <laughs> <laughs> the freedom of choice, I guess. Yeah. Um, obviously, Russia was the sort of dominant force within the Soviet Union from the beginning, uh, throughout those years, but as you said, the, the power of the, the republics was was entrenched, um, and certainly, as you write, the sort of non-Slavic uh, representation within the Soviet leadership was it, it was you know it was quite marked. But there seems to be um, a bit of a paradox here for me, Sheila, that th those uh, minority groups were um, heralded up towards the leadership uh, positions within the, the Soviet system. But it wasn't beneath the leaders to resort to anti-Semitism when it suited them, as we certainly saw in the case of Trotsky and others, to their cost. Well, you know, there was... A, in the Soviet approach to nationalities, uh, which means ethnic groups, the, the, um, there's a big difference between those nationalities that had their own republic or, or territory, and they had a republican government, and they ran a lot of things their own way, and those that didn't. Say the Georgians have a republic, the Ukrainians have a republic, the Jews don't have a republic. They did try to set up that autonomous area in uh, Birubijan, uh, way out in the Far East, but that wasn't where Jews were living. And uh, So let's, let's just simplify it and say the Jews don't have a republic. So that the the nationalities that are the so-called titular nationalities are, are the ones in the good position uh, and are those who are not titular uh, but are minority nationalities within those regions, not just in Russia, all the, you know, Ukraine, Georgia, they also had their national minorities. They, they are in less good position and they are also liable, uh, one has to say, from time to time, not only to, for, uh, to oppression from Moscow, but to a, a, oppression from, well, let's say, Tbilisi, or from, a, in other words, in Georgia, that the titular nationalities in the republics could also be a, a, a repressive. So when I asked you earlier about um, sort of the very different sort of ethnic diversity that existed within the Soviet Union and how it all kind of hung together, those were not the only challenges, of course. I mean, the, the revolution came about in the middle of a world war you had uh, famines to deal with, you had civil war, um, you had this incredible um, sort of enforced collectivized farming. Um, those are pretty big tensions within a sort of new kind of uh, political structure. So I'll ask the same question again. Why did it just not explode? Why did it hold together? Well. You know, when you're talking about something like collectivization, I think that's, that's uh, in, in a way, it's a separate issue, uh, a separate issue from the, from the national one, in a way. I, I, in other words, there are all sorts of tensions within the society uh, and all sorts of problems uh, which are not national ones. Uh, but I guess a, a question would be, um, you know, where do you go? Where do you go? I mean, in that, that sort of putative explosion. I, I, I suppose the metaphor isn't quite right for me because the whole of the Soviet population found itself dealing with a series of awful things, of civil war, of famine, uh, of, uh, and then war again, and then another famine, uh, smaller, after the war. And normally speaking, when things are really bad, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's the time that they explode. Uh, you know, there's the old de Tocqueville uh, saying that nothing is so dangerous uh, uh, for a, uh, an oppressive government as when things start to get better. And I think that applies to the economy too. When you're, when you're right, right with your back to the wall, probably people just struggle through. But as things start to get better, 
then there may be more thoughts of, you know, of radical change. Um, certainly, um, uh, a lot of what we read about in your book has to do with the USSR kind of racing to catch up to the US and the West in terms of um, uh, prosperity and education, life expectancy, and so on. Maybe you can um, talk us through, uh, did they succeed and how they succeeded in doing that? And also this concept that you raise of backwardness that they had to deal with, how did they deal with that? The thought, the, the thought that they were backward was a very powerful impulse. Uh, or rather, to put it another way, the impulse towards modernization was very powerful in the, in the revolutionary movement. Uh, in a sense, socialism was seen as a, as a form of uh, modernization. And so the whole rhetoric is how do we get out of the backwardness, economic, cultural, social uh, that we're in. Uh, and those education programs I talked about were a part of it. The first five-year plan, the, 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 the basic impulse, the basic goal of those plans was to build up industry throughout the Soviet Union, to build the in industrial might of the Soviet Union in general, but also to, to spread it geographically so that it's not all on the, mm. uh, uh, near the border and in danger. Now, in terms of the catching up, uh, Khrushchev, uh, back in the, in, the, in the late 50s, early 60s, he was a great one for saying, we have caught up. We have caught up, and, we, and we're going to get to communism quite soon, and we're doing terribly well. But they hadn't caught up economically. Uh, and uh, in the Brezhnev time, which, as I say, was more or less the beginning, early Brezhnev, it's, uh, in the 70s, uh, probably the, the most successful time uh, for that as a society, They've done better, they've greatly improved on their own previous record, but they haven't caught up, except in education. Now, life expectancy is interesting because they were, that was rising up until the 70s, and it, had, it was in sight, uh, well, if it had continued rising on that trajectory, it might have got up to the United States in another, I can't remember how long, but you know, that, that's what it looked like, and then, the Soviet life expectancy start to go down. And uh, among the most dramatic demographic figures I've ever seen are what happened to male life expectancy uh, in the 1980s and 90s. Went down incredibly low, got down to 58. As, I mean, that really is when they were, they were pushing into the 70s and now 58. And to me, the, one of the most interesting things there was that male life expectancy went down, plummeted, in the last phase of the Soviet Union, in uh, Perestroika, under Brezhnev, under Gorbachev, sorry. Female life expectancy only lost about two and a half years. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which you have to say, it proves again that women are stronger. <laughs> <laughs> All that housework they took on. <laughs> so, uh, Khrushchev, uh, you know, presided over the Cuban Missile Crisis in the early 60s, but we had all these other advances, as you're saying, life expectancy, uh, education, and uh, industrial output, and so on. Um, if there is such a thing as the golden years of the Soviet Union, would that period be it? I'd say the beginning 70s would be the golden years. But the trouble is that they were also, from the point of view of many people who lived there, <laughs> they were starting to be boring. I mean, this is, of course, very perverse of people, that when their lives are full of upheaval, they think if only things could become normal and stable. But then when they do become normal and stable, especially if you don't have access to, to, uh, to some things that you know exist in the West, uh, well, then you start to feel constrained. You start to feel constrained because the borders are still closed. That, by the way, is a really important to remember about the Soviet Union. Essentially, the borders closed uh, at, at the beginning, in the early 20s, and they didn't start opening again uh, until uh, really the 60s, and then only to a limited degree, uh, and they didn't fully open uh, un until, the, until the collapse. The 60s, of course, was uh, when you went to the Soviet Union for the first time. This is not directly related to the book, but it's also, it is sort of comes out in your memoir, Spy in the Archives, which I would recommend as well, by the way. Um, you were in your 20s, newly married, 
um, heading off to the Soviet Union as a British exchange program for the first time. I mean, it's a, it was a society that was sort of just emerging from that Stalin era. It had the Cuban Missile Crisis, like the mid, mid part of the century. Weren't you a bit anxious about going as like one small individual against what could be quite a sort of brutal state machinery? Weren't you scared that you might just get kind of swallowed up by it? Oh, of course it was scary, but it was also terribly exciting. Now, it was not as scary uh, uh, as it might have been in that the only way to go there for a period of time, other than short-term tourist visit, was to go on one of these state exchanges. And if you were on a state exchange, you could get into trouble, but you were not going to get arrested because you would be sent home. The embassy would come and pull you out straight away. Now, that would be very bad, but it is, you know, we were... Sometimes foreigners got arrested, but it wasn't going to be us because we were, would be protected by the embassy. That's the first thing. So second thing is it was tremendously exciting because, at least in my picture, when I went there, so little was clearly known about the Soviet Union. We had the Cold War sort of stuff that said it's terribly powerful and threatening, uh, and then uh, uh, and, and the Soviet stuff also, which said it is terribly powerful but not threatening. Uh, but peace-loving. So it was a big surprise to go there and find that they don't have plastic buckets. In other words, this is a third-world uh, economy. This is the women with the little birch brooms, you know, the brooms where you have to lean over. Uh, wow. And you would see them cleaning not only corridors in buildings but actually streets like this. So this is a shock. If what, you've, if, if what you've been hearing about is basically the evil empire, which by definition is extremely powerful. Now, the, also, uh, the first thing one encounters there was terrible bureaucracy, and I mean by you know, stupid bureaucracy. Nothing could be done. I know my favorite example of this is that you could only stay in the Soviet Union as long as your visa was valid. Uh, but on the other hand, you couldn't leave without an exit visa. So... <laughs> <laughs> So if the exit visa happened to be delayed, you were in a kind of completely uh, a, a sort of no man's land. But in addition to the third worldness and the bureaucracy, there was a third thing that we all, all of us exchange students encountered, was that we all made very close friends. British Foreign Office had told us this would never happen, etc. You'll never make friends with Soviet. Everybody made friends with them. Half the people married them and tried to export them. It's very hard to export. <laughs> uh, Especially hard to export husbands. It was easier to export wives. But in any case, I was married, so I didn't, didn't try that. But I did, <laughs> <laughs> I did make very, very close friends, sort of yes. friends for life. You know, the, the real kind of friends. I'm going to ask you about that in a moment. We're going to take questions from the floor. If you have any questions, there's a mic just over there. Um, you went there to write about Anatoly Lunachowski, and then you ended up as you say, these remarkable friendships with his daughter, Irina, and then his uh, brother-in-law, uh, Igor Satz, who, mm -hmm. who's the book you dedicate to. Um, would that have been very unusual? And how, how important to you were those friendships? It wasn't unusual, you know? I mean, we had been told that it couldn't happen. And yet, in my acquaintance, almost everybody had a family like I had, the lunacharsky Satz family, that had taken them in that treated them as a family member, uh, that would sort of... Uh, the Soviet attitude to money was funny. They thought of it like any other commodity. So they would more or less say, are you hungry? Can I give you some food? Uh, are you short of money? Can I give you some rubles? It, it, you, within the family context, it was... Uh, so it was not unusual, but it, it was wonderful. And, of course, in my case, since I was working on on uh, uh, the the... the the, the founder of that family, uh, it was particularly good, except uh, that if you, I mean, historians or biographers in the audience will know uh, that when you have a terrific source on somebody's life, you also have a potential censor. <laughs> and the more that you like that person who is the censor, the more difficult it gets. And so I had real trouble about Lunacharsky. I had been thinking of writing a biography of him, and I do think he was... He was a likable and, in many ways, admirable person, but silly. That, I, I really came to the, the... Silly and politically inept. So I thought... And Irina's life, uh, his daughter, is, uh, was dedicated to preserving her father's memory. And so 
you know, what am I going to do? What kind of book can I write? So I shifted. I changed my topic. I changed my topic from the biography of Lunacharsky to Lunacharsky as Commissar of Education, as Minister of Education. In other words, I, I, sp I shifted it so that I wouldn't have to deal up front with that, uh, with that awkwardness. But, yeah, my friendship with Irina lasted until she died. Uh, and she was killed idiotically and her, fir her first trip outside into a first trip to London and a car crash driven by a Russian, you know, Russian were not great drivers from the airport. Oh my goodness. Uh, Igor uh, lived longer. Um, uh, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. Igor had already, uh, had, had died early. Who was, Igor was uh, essentially, a, a substantially older uh, than uh, Irina. Now, so this was a, this was a friendship. I mean, when he died, the family tele sent me a telegram so that I could take part in the mourning, you know, the, the, the sort of, so with them in spirit, so to speak. So this was this was a really important uh, connection in my life, uh, and uh, right. And I have to say, I I Igor in particular was an old Bolshevik. He'd run away. He was a student at the of piano at Kiev Conservatorium. He'd run away to join the revolution, and he was, he was a very, in a way, cynical man, he, so he had lots of, 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 of criticisms of what had come about, but at the same time, it was his revolution, his party, and he, as he once said to me, you don't, I've only got the one, the one country, the one party, I didn't, you know, fate didn't give me another one, and therefore I'll stay with him. When the Soviet Union collapsed, one of my thoughts was I was quite glad that Igor in particular, but also Irina were, you know, not there to see it. He certainly sounded like a, as a brave intellectual who <laughs> made a lot of enemies within, within the system. We haven't even got to the Stalin purges yet, but let's take a question from the audience. Yes, it's been fascinating. Um, you mentioned that the 70s were the highlight, um, maybe not so for the Jews. Could you talk about the refuseniks and uh, the repercussions? on a worldwide level. Mm. Yes, well, the, the Jewish emigration uh, story was, uh, you know, quite a complicated one. I mentioned that the Soviet borders were closed. That meant that nobody was allowed to emigrate. Not just Jews, but nobody. Uh, on a few occasions, some particular groups were allowed to leave, as, as the Polish Jews at the end of the Second World War. Uh, but it became, uh, freedom to leave became a Cold War issue, and it was uh, particularly with regard to Jewish, but also to some degree German immigration. Uh, so it, uh, and the result of that was that gradually uh, the Soviets uh, resisted, inconsistently re re resisted allowing large uh, groups to, uh, uh, to leave, uh, and uh, they were pressured to do so from outside. But in the cause of that, of course, the situation of, of those Jews who wished to leave uh, became much worse within the Soviet Union. They individually, uh, because they, once they'd made known their intention to leave and were waiting for permission, uh, they became, as it were, outsiders. They were excluded from the society. Uh, and, uh, and, and others in it. And there was also, I have to say, because other people were not allowed to emigrate, there was a degree of resentment that, you know, that, that Jews had got this privilege. Hmm. We've got lots of questions. Let's take another one, please. Thanks, Anton, and thank you for doing a great job. Um, so good morning. And also good morning to you, Sheila. Um, I have a... Um, a statement that I'd really appreciate a comment on. Um, in the context of the current crisis in Ukraine, and this is from a histori historian's academic's perspective, Putin uses his understanding of Russia's history to help validate his invasion of Ukraine. And Zelensky's understanding is very different. These differences reflect the importance of historians, such as yourselves, role in documenting all the bits and pieces that shape our knowledge and memories of our past. The famine you refer to in your book is called The Holodomor by Ukrainians. It's in the book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but many people aren't aware of that. 
Um, could you please comment on this? A comment on, uh, on the role of historians in shaping um, a, um, our history, our past. So Zelensky's and Putin's understanding is very different and so that's um, very important in a historian's um, perspective, I feel, as do so many other Ukrainians. So it's um, to do with stuff that shapes the knowledge and memories of the past. Yes, well, historians, of course, uh, attempt to understand the past and uh, to explain it. Uh, and there are also people who are not professional historians uh, who attempt to, <laughs> who have their own understandings of the past and who tr seek to use them for uh, political purposes, uh, which are, you know, which I, I think uh, is, is a right that one must concede to them, even if I'm a professional historian, I, 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 uh, everybody can have their own understandings of history. Uh, now, historians, uh, those who are professional historians probably feel uh, uh, a, a, a particular obligation uh, to master all the sources, to, 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 to deal fairly with all the evidence, uh, and they will often feel uh, that to take too partisan a position would be to distort uh, their representation of the past. Okay. I found that your histories of the Soviet Union uh, broke down a lot of misconceptions I had about it and opened my eyes to new areas of the history that I hadn't thought about. Um, what do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions or misunderstandings that people not from the region have about the Soviet Union? I suppose the degree of its modernity would be uh, uh, one of the, and it was treated as, as in the days of the Cold War when it was seen as enormously threatening that, and it had after all sent a man into space and so on. That went with a sense of uh, that its power was all encompassing. Uh, and uh, of course in some, in some uh, areas like military it was indeed uh, impressive, but in other areas it was very much not. So I'd see that as a major misconception. Okay. 1980, which you said was a high point for the Soviet Union, is when Polish solidarity was created. This led to the disintegration of the Soviet Union nine years later. Lip. But you did not mention Poland once. Why? <laughs> well, you find mention of the Soviet of Poland in my book, but it isn't actually in the Soviet Union. So that's why I didn't focus on in my discussion today. <laughs> okay, question. Sheila, um, would it be too simplistic to say that where we are today in relation to Russia is the failure of the West to learn from history? If we look back to the end of the First World War and Versailles, <coughs> the oppressive measures placed on Germany following the war, leading to Nazi, the growth of Nazism and Hitler, of course. The reality after the Second World War, the lesson was learnt in the endeavours and successful endeavours to incorporate Germany into the West and the democracy. And then the collapse in, in 1991 of the Soviet Union and talk of the end of history and the failure of the West to instead of in all, virtually treat Russia as the, the defeated and the poor, to incorporate them into the West and, and, and attempted to broaden out democracy within Russia. Is, is that why we are where we are today? That's an interesting analysis, and I think it's a part of why we're uh, where, where we are today. Uh, I mean, there are obviously sort of internal factors on the, on the Russian uh, side. And I'd, I'd, I'd also say to sort of diverge a little bit from the question into the broader, uh, the broader area of whether things are inevitable in history. In other words, whether historical circumstances set things up so that a certain outcome has to happen. Uh, I have to say that I don't go along with that, really. And in my, and my book, uh, that's one of the themes, because I'm... I'm, I'm playing off the notion that the Soviets thought they had history taped 
and they understood everything. And the fact that there is, uh, has been historically, uh, including in the end of the Soviet Union, so much that was contingent. But I do basically sympathize with that analysis. We're almost out of time. I'm just going to put in one last question, Sheila. I, you know, throughout the, the, the decades of the Soviet uh, um, system, you had this whole other kind of gray economy that was taking place where things were happening under the counter, favorite, uh, you know, some, uh, favors were going back and forth, nepotism, bribery, corruption that the leadership seemed to just turn a blind eye to. So on, on an official level, it was operating in a certain way, but in reality, there was a whole lot of other stuff happening. To what extent do you think that made a mockery of the, the Soviet system? Well, to some degree, it, 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 it could be said to make a mockery of planning because it applies to the economy as a whole that uh, all kinds of dealings behind the scenes were necessary to make the, to make the plan actually work. Now, in people's everyday lives, it was also necessary to have connections to get particular goods. And th th this a sort of notion of reciprocity, you know, you can give me access somewhere and I can give you, I, I can uh, repay with something. And it's not on the notion of an immediate exchange, but rather that we've got a an ongoing sort of uh, tab <laughs> with, uh, with each other. Uh, so th this too, by the way, uh, it probably intensified the third world feeling, uh, because it's not, it's not unique to the Soviet Union, but it was certainly strikingly uh, incongruous with the self-image of the Soviet Union. Well, I could just say that it's, um, it's a very informative book and very, very engaging. I really, really had a good time uh, reading it, and it's been a wonderful one hour and one minute talking to you, Sheila. Please thank Sheila Fitzpatrick. And the book is available. Sheila's going to be signing it for you over at the book 10. Thanks very much.